You are listening to The Political Periscope, a weekly podcast brought to you by Radio WNET. Interviews on international politics, security, geopolitics, economy and more, every Thursday at 7pm. Today's guest of The Political Periscope is Christian Power, Central and Eastern Europe reporter for the Dutch public broadcaster NOS. Political Periscope. You've been recently to Ukraine, to the territories that were affected by the flood after the blowing up of the dam. How was it? Well, obviously, from the start, it was clear that it was going to be a catastrophe, what's happening around uh, the Dnieper River right now uh, and over the last weeks. Um, but still, you can't really imagine the skill up to the point that you get there, especially in the beginning. There was not that much reporting from the ground. There were, of course, videos coming out. Uh, it took us a couple of days to get to the actual affected area. And interestingly, we first went to Kherson. And when you arrive, you notice a rather calm environment where people living in the city basically walk around in their shorts and slippers. And the moment you proceed at some point it's just the, the the street ends in water basically and you realize that half of the city is flooded now we were there for the humanitarian story first of all uh, when we arrived it was a rather calm environment and you nearly forget that it's actually a city on the front line and you nearly forget how quickly it can escalate the situation can escalate uh, and that's also what happened when we were there when we were reporting on the volunteers helping people out of their houses and russians started bombarding the city so yeah that that's the moment you realize that it's it's not only an ecological disaster and and a, and a humanitarian disaster but also still a war zone a very intense war zone where inhabitants have been living under shelling for for months now heavy russian shelling what was maybe some image maybe some scene what was the the thing that impressed you the most in negative or positive way well it was the the i guess the surprise but not entirely surprising what we already seen in ukraine over the last year how quickly the whole help and support for in these kind of situations whether it's bombings or in this case this blowing up of the dam uh, how quickly the help was set up and underway and how people just got to work, right? Uh, it's what we see all through Ukraine during this war. At the same time, it uh, becomes really quickly, it becomes clear how the, the scale of the catastrophe becomes very clear uh, quickly. I drove around uh, the town with a, with a volunteer who was helping people out of their houses. We went around in his, uh, in his little dinghy. All of a sudden you realize you're not, <laughs> you're, you're not going around to Dnieper, but you're going around town, but you're in a boat, right? And you see tank sta gas stations, you know, un entirely underwater. At some point I realized I had to cover my head. I had to uh, uh, make sure I was low enough to not bump my head into some electrical cables, which turned out to be the uh, cables of the tram that would run over the, the street we were crossing, but then by boat. And that's when you see the, the obviously the scale, you feel the scale of the catastrophe. And at the same time, there were plenty of, well, plenty, there were some people in the city who decided to just wait it out. Uh, who were like, well, you know, we survived Russian occupation. We've survived months and months of heavy shelling. Uh, we're just going to wait it out uh, and hope that the water goes, uh, goes away soon so we can, uh, you know, just try to get back on our feet is there maybe a need an urge a temptation when you're there as a journalist when you see people suffering to just drop the microphone drop the camera and start helping 
Interesting question. Uh, it's obviously an old, a very known question and, and, and difficulty for journalists when you start helping, right? I guess in my situation at that point, I know I knew that my role was there to be a journalist, to report on what's happening there, to report on the, the you know, the catastrophe and, and on the, 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 the shelling and, and what happened to the volunteers when we were there. Uh, people also died and people have been dying during these rescue operations. So so that's my role. If I would end up in some kind of situation where a person is in urgent need at that very spot, I mean, uh, um, I guess then things change. I haven't been in that specific situation yet. Um, but yeah, that would change this, uh, the situation. But you clearly have to distinguish what your role is in, a, in such an area. From Harrison, you went to the front line. Well, yeah. So basically, we were there when also the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive was starting to pick up speed, right? And the big question was, what's actually happening there? We had certain limitations. We decided not to go all the way into the trenches. For that, we didn't have the, the proper tools, the proper uh, maybe also uh, uh, support to make that happen. We were close, uh, up to 10, 15 kilometers from the front line to see what was, you know, uh, what we could see there, what kind of movements, what the general vibe was of the soldiers there. Obviously, the the image we are shown, and which is definitely correct, is a, a very uh, resilient Ukraine over the last year. Resilient in the fact that they are very much convinced that they're going to take back all the country, all the land taken by Russia uh, over the last year, and basically since 2014, right? But there's also realism if you speak to the actual soldiers who know the reality of such a such a like incredible like it's impossible to imagine what kind of situation these these men uh, are in. It's it's like classic trench warfare, right? So, and and that, and they see that as well. Uh, I spoke to drone operators who basically go as close as they can to do reconnaissance missions and map out uh, the the Russian trenches, right? Which is crucial if you want to force your way through at some point. And they also express like, yeah, of course, I mean, we're going to take it back, but it's not going to be easy. So that's, uh, that's very much clear that maybe we expect also with all the fuss and all the hype about a counteroffensive that uh, we expect some quick results, but that's not the case, right? It can take months. Uh, or longer before Ukraine might actually be able to to go through these lines. Uh, and it's far from decided, of course. You were reporting all this for the Netherlands, for people in Netherlands. What is the reaction of public in the Netherlands? What is the attitude? Do people still care about Ukraine, about war in Ukraine? I, I think so, uh, very much so, actually. There are no signs that uh, people in the Netherlands are um, hesitant about their support of anything. Uh, most uh, recent polling at the end of last year suggested that actually the Netherlands is, together with Poland, one of the most supportive countries, uh, if we're talking about public opinion, right? Uh, supporting Ukraine to take back all its territory before even considering any kind of deal with Russia. And yeah, no, so in, in general, the, the public has been very supportive. And uh, that's also has also strengthened our politicians to become the forefront of support for Ukraine. For example, if we talk about, if we have the debate about F-16s, the Netherlands has been now for some time saying, has been saying that Ukraine has to have F-16s to fight Russia and the Netherlands is willing to give that kind of training because we have F-16s ourselves as well. I think that the shutting down of MH17 flight really affected the public opinion in the Netherlands. It was definitely an important ingredient for us, for our understanding of this conflict. And 
I guess also for us to be taken out of our a bit naive approach to uh, Russia over the last decades, right? We've always been a, a merchant country. That's where our strength came from. We traded with Russia a lot. We always figured a bit like Germany, of course, as well, that as long as we continued our close economic ties with Russia, there would be no rationale uh, and there would be no reason for, for uh, Moscow to start some kind of broader conflict. Even though the signs were clearly there over the years, we didn't really want to believe that. MH17 clearly opened our eyes, uh, especially the response, not, not just the tragedy itself, right? And the shooting down of this airline itself, but the reaction from Russia, you know, the, the constant denial, the refusal to actually productively cooperate with an international in investigation, denying, denying, denying. It, it showed us the, the uh, cynicism from the Russian side for this tragedy and it made us so it opened our eyes, definitely. But there are plenty of other reasons, I'd say, as well, why why the Netherlands has been so supportive. It's probably, I, our prime minister recently wrote that as well, pointed that out, the element of a smaller nation being invaded by its big uh, neighbor, right? Uh, and obviously something we lived through in the Second World War. Big, what we thought was a brotherly nation invaded us. And, and uh, it's some kind of, there's some kind of historical pa parallel that might, uh, might inspire people in the Netherlands as well. And also, I do feel like, I mean, the interesting part, what we've seen all through Europe uh, is that the whole reason why, obviously, uh, uh, Putin said this, this war was necessary because uh, the NATO threats and all, the, you know, the, the supposed arguments why uh, uh, this is a, a special military operation to defend uh, Russia, whatever Russia did only strengthened the understanding in uh, also in countries like the Netherlands uh, with all the horrific images coming out of Ukraine it strengthened the understanding and belief in the Netherlands as well that we, for years we've been indulging Russia right we've been trying to keep them friends we in uh, 2013 we even had a friendly uh, Russia Netherlands year which I was actually part of as well. I worked as, a, as an intern back then. All with the bigger bigger plan of close economic ties in the end will also bring a more democratic and liberal Russia. And that's something we have to reconcile with right now as well because we've basically been uh, supporting these uh, a, a, a Russian war chest, uh, which is now responsible for, for, uh, for a large-scale, large full-scale invasion uh, with uh, tens of thousands of deaths as a, as a cause of it, as a result. Before the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022, Poland had some conflicts with the European Commission. We have our reasons, but I know that the public opinion in the West uh, was rather not very friendly towards Poland in this case. Did the situation change and how it changed in Netherlands that this image of Poland after the Russian invasion. Yeah, it's a very interesting point, uh, and I think it's a it's a, a, a rather critical uh, debate that has not about which the the harsh we're sort of circling around it right now, and the the harsh words have not been said yet. Basically, what you've noticed uh, with the uh, full scale invasion that. Uh, Poland realized that it had to f give something to the European Union to make them happy and to countries like the Netherlands who were very critical and countries like the Netherlands realized how uh, critical Poland is in this whole in this whole conflict not just logistically militarily diplomatically in all fronts right uh, so what you could see before the full-scale invasion the Netherlands was one of the harsher critics our prime minister was one of the leaders suggesting that Poland should not receive its uh, COVID-19 uh, support, uh, billions of euros uh, from Brussels, because of its undermining of the rule of law. That was cleared up after Poland did some small concessions at the beginning uh, of, uh, of last year. 
And now you noticed, uh, even now with the, the Lex Tusk, of course, and the broader worries there are about these new developments for uh, a commission uh, to investigate Russian influence, you could see that uh, basically we do not dare to speak what we believe to be important for the rule of law, right? So uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, your Prime Minister Morawiecki uh, visited our Prime Minister in the Netherlands. And basically, you could even say, like, at the, it was just after this, uh, this Lex Tusk, uh, as they so, as they call it, was uh, was announced that basically our prime minister was still using fluff around around it to keep you know his Polish counterpart happy. He wouldn't say we disagree or whatever. He was like he was explaining we are of course interested in the worries of right. So you could you could really much very much see because they were also talking about support for Ukraine this conflict of okay on one hand we need Poland Poland needs us uh, this is the broader debate at the same time we are very much uh, not at ease with what's happening especially in this election year and we still have to see what's going to happen right we still have to see whether it's actually going to be used the coming months to take out political opponents we very much don't like it but for now we're just going to keep you know stay friendly and we hope there's going to be a way out because yeah there's with our support for ukraine there's obviously there's no way around poland in the most literal way because of its position but also in a broader sense of course another topic that is controversial even inside poland between the government and the opposition but well it seemed that it gained a the government, in this case, Polish government, gained uh, support from the European Union, even if, if it was a silent support. I'm talking about the uh, border crisis with Belarus, uh, migration crisis on the border. Now, I know that you've been also investigating this topic. Yeah, of course, another important topic where, where Poland plays such a critical role as a, as a border state for the European Union. What you notice, but that's that's broad, a broader sense you get in Europe, right? Where we have been desensitized uh, towards like images of uh, cruelty and death along our borders. Obviously, it started as a, as a hybrid form of warfare from Belarus. By now, it's become a natural route. Uh, actually, the people I spoke to along the border, migrants I spoke to, actually travel through Russia now, but they travel on their own initiative. So they weren't flown in by Belarus like uh, a couple years ago, but they're still coming in large amount of numbers. And um, yeah, what you can basically... the the sort of silent support as you as you stated i i think it, it there is no clear answer yet from europe from countries like the netherlands because we don't know what to do differently uh, and also we do not dare to speak out the harsh truth also when it comes to the the horrible treatment of migrants along the border you know uh, mostly on the belarus side but there's also you know with the fence and everything people disappearing in the in the forest people the pushbacks you know which used to be uh, uh, considered uh, illegal and against the international law now it's just accepted as a common practice all along the european border the fact that it, there is a not actual harsh resistance from countries like the Netherlands basically shows that I guess there is not no clear answer how to do it differently at the moment. Uh, um, I don't know if that answers your question, sort of. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's what you, we see both in the Mediterranean Sea and we see it along the border of, of Belarus. There is no clear uh, alternative presented from uh, other countries, uh, Western European countries. So the easiest thing to do, especially with all the other struggles we have at the moment, is uh, just to, you know, look away for now and, uh, you know, let Poland and Lithuania, of course, uh, uh, solve it by closing up the border as much as they can uh, and pushing back uh, migrants. Uh, 
you've been in Poland for a few months now. What is the most outstanding thing here? What is the catches the most your attention? So uh, what I find very fascinating uh, about Poland is uh, from what I can see, it's uh, uh, there's a huge amount of polarization right now in the in soci- within society, and that's only going to get stronger in the coming months. Obviously, we had a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, we had the big march in Warsaw, uh, might be the biggest protest in decades. And what you still notice, it was it was a clear sign of discontent from uh, a large part of the population about, well, a lot of things that are happening in the country, from rule of law, uh, abortion, but also galvanized by the latest, as they call it, Lex Tusk, right? What I noticed, though, despite hundreds of thousands of people being on the march, it was still somehow in such an orderly fashion, right? Uh, we know, I know from plenty of other countries, where protests, even the smallest protests, can easily escalate. And what is, for now, kind of, I guess, inspiring, if you consider the polar, the actual polarization and how far away both sides in the current Polish society are. They hardly speak at it to each other anymore. They, there's a demonization of the other side. Somehow, these kind of protests still go in such an orderly and, and, and uh, peaceful fashion, right? Uh, I, I, I couldn't find any reports of uh, civil unrest or de- disobedience, despite hundreds of thousands of people at the same time marching through Warsaw. So I guess uh, that's uh, that's within the, the larger political spectrum, uh, I would say a positive note about uh, yeah what we might uh, can maybe expect expect for the for the rest of this election year. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Piotr. This was the Political Periscope. The podcast is released every Thursday at 7 p.m. 